That's uh, Charles Mingus reading the first paragraph of a very moving, very telling, a remarkable autobiography, Beneath the Underdog. His world is composed by Charles Mingus, who was one of the original talents in the world of jazz, this creative man. It's his bass you heard in the beginning. That was his quartet, Eric Dolphy, the late Eric Dolphy at the alto, improvising folk forms. And so this is both music and its words, words and music together. Knopf for the publishers of this book. And I'm thinking what you said, Mr. Mingus, you know, your whole creation, your uh, contribution to jazz is so much. You've always been considered also a volatile figure, a guy who speaks his mind. And here you're talking about your book, the three people, you say. In this book, you use the I, and then you say he, and you speak of uh, baby, and you yeah. speak of Mingus. Yeah. I used to talk more than I talk now. Yeah? Yeah. I'm thinking I used to be a fighter. Mm hmm? They used to say I was a fighter. You say you used to be a fighter. Yeah. The book does it. Yeah. I can't talk much in person anymore. How come? I don't know. This is lost for words. But you never were at a loss for words, just whether before an audience that was uh, not listening or an audience that was uh, expressing its own kind of uh, contempt for art, or even though they were there, you would tell off people. But what is it? The book speaks a great deal for you, but why is it that you feel you talk less? I know I do. I just can't think anything to say. It's not since I wrote the book either. It's just some kind of fear I'm going through. When you talk about fears, we go, let's go back to beginning this book. This book, uh, it, throughout the book, there's your talk to a psychiatrist. There was a breakdown that came later on. Yeah. After a pretty full and rich and uh, volatile life. But beginnings. You know what, what impresses me about the book, uh, Charles Mingus, is it's the combination of truth and fantasy. Where's the line that ends it, you know? Yeah. Is it where is the line ends? Yeah, I mean, in, in your case, not in your case, in the case of all people with great imaginations and talent. Mm -hmm. Because your book, it deals with that very point, doesn't it? Yeah, it tries to. I try. It was Watts where you were born. Yeah, well, I wasn't born. I was I mean, you, three months old. Yeah. Came here. But Watts, and the early part, do you recall, you do in the book, I'm thinking about the beginning, this area that later on made the headlines, but you saw that. You saw the seeds of the headlines when you were a small boy. Oh, yeah. Watts had to come up with something. It was loaded with hate. Just like the South. But there was uh, a guy named Rodia, the old guy who built oh, yeah. the towers. towers. That yeah. was something different. You ever it? seen that? No. Yeah. No, who is He's a guy, an old Italian guy. He used to collect stones and mm -hmm. glass and marble. Uh, he would build these concretes like boat masts, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful. And so there was this work of beauty that was there. Yeah, he's the only artist I knew around there. Yeah. But you speak of something that's interesting here about your father and your mother. And your father was rough, he beat you, but somehow, if I could quote from this right here, this is a key problem, isn't it? First of all, the frustrations of a man who could have been something else. Yeah. So he took it out on those closest to him. Yeah. He was uh, a brutal man. He beat my sisters so much I couldn't, couldn't understand it. And the way he beat them, you know, the same way with a strap, short strap. He even hit my sister one time. Uh, 
going to church. With his fist, she supposed to sing in church. And she went, went out of church. She was classical vocalist, classically trained. You were telling, though, about you kind of understood in a way later on, not at the moment. I understood him. I'm going to like him, you know. That there was something else he wanted to be. Yeah, well, he was he was definitely an architect. But they had to work in the post office. I'm thinking something else, because this, this comes off, and my friend Big Bill the Bruins, uh, Big Bill Brunsey, the late uh, great country blues singer, broke, uh, brought it. Matter of cast, matter of shade of skin, you are light. And that became a problem, too. Sometimes you wish you were very black, so at least you would have a... That's what Paul said to Miles Davis. He was as black as he was. But this, the black race had many, you know, in those days they had prejudice among themselves that needed to be sawed out, too. They're just not beginning to try and get together. Because it was, it was very common for a person to call somebody black and mean the same thing a white man means. Did you feel did you feel superior because you had a light, a coffee-colored skin? As a, as I felt a superior to my father for not being prejudiced. I never saw my skin. I never knew what he was talking about. Yeah. I felt superior to him because he was he sounded wrong. Yeah. But as far as the light, the lightness that didn't. No. no. Then, so inferior. Hmm? I always felt inferior because of light skin. That's interesting. Inferior to someone who was blacker. Yeah. Because at least there was something. Because ah, here are you, there's a, who, who knows who your great-grandfather was. I'm, I, he probably was the, uh, the slave owner who was, uh, a, your mother probably, I mean, your great-great-grandmother probably was a slave, possibly. Yeah. And your great-grandfather probably may have been the very uh, respected plantation owner. Mm -hmm. So you had the feeling of not knowing where you stood. Yeah. So it comes to music, and so, Originally, it was a trombone, was it? That trombone, like? yeah, it's a cello. There's one moment you describe here uh, when you were playing in the high school orchestra. They were doing Beethoven's Fifth. Yeah. And you were what? You were, you were improvising. Was, is, is that what? No. No? I, I was reading. Um, they were just taking out some bars the kids couldn't play. And I didn't know it. I was sick with smallpox for that, that rehearsal. And I came back, I was. Out there by myself. What led you to the bass? Was one of the one of the guys, you know, musicians, you know, that led you to the bass? You know, I think I tell it in Buddy Collette, and those guys yeah. talked me into it. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Collette, there's a very funny scene. Wish we could read it on the air in full. Buddy Collette, a marvelous jazz man, his father, his father was giving you advice. Yeah. And how to deal with women. Yeah. And it's a funny three or four pages of wild advice. It's great. It's a very gamey advice. <laughs> I imagine Charles Mingus in the books, he followed it quite effectively. But there's something here. And then, of course, I guess a great moment was you. So Red Callender, who was a good bass man, was one of your teachers. Yeah, wasn't he? Red Callender was my first yeah. teacher. What is it? What is it? Since we think of the bass, here's a, something because of the bass, that not a melodic instrument. At least mm. I, I, as a non-jazz guy, I don't think of a non-music man. But what is it? Red Calendar taught you about fingering, fingering, notation. You have to learn what fingers to put on what notes, yeah. so you end up making sense. He didn't, he didn't teach Boeing very much. I learned that from Ryan Zagan. 
then well, that's what you learn about bass how yeah. to play in tune how to hear how to play in tune in tune yeah. uh, which is going out kids don't even play in tune anymore well, how, how, what, do you, what do you mean they don't have to the kids those electric basses man they're not in tune sometimes it's like three notes at once it is loud so the loudness this is you're talking now about electrified instruments yeah. now you feel that there's been a, a a lowering of standards in? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's gimmicks, the hats and clothes, how they dress. Mm. This is the music. Yeah. And so you can you hear it. You, of course, would hear it. The idea that there's talking to Charles Mingus, the basis of this conversation is. Yeah, musicians hear it. Hmm? Musicians hear it. Musicians hear it. But what happens to the young audience? And just the idea that's the loudness of it. Is that the idea? As loud as you can make it. And that's it. So, but on that subject, before we want to ask you about your meeting with Tatum, rehearsing with Art Tatum, very fantastic artist, the piano. Uh, do are, is there an audience today for jazz? The jazz that you represent, the jazz that your friend of other years, Fats. I think it is. Man. I just think that the public is still separated from it. If you just turn the radio and you just know one kind of music all the time, is anybody in the permanent? They brainwash the country with this one kind of music, one side of music. I heard Billy Eckstein and Sammy Davis going to sue the, sue the record, radio stations. Why? The fair play. Why, not playing enough of their works? As they said, yeah. Uh -huh. That's interesting. Here are two established performers, but they're being bypassed because they're perhaps of another age group, isn't yeah. it? Another kind of group in Thailand. But jazz never was part of what they call the mainstream of American life, was it? It's Nothing a tragedy. I don't know, has been, no. And yet there it was. I mean, well, thousands of people listen to them. Yeah. The festivals proved that. The festivals came because of jazz, yeah. yeah. The very rock festivals and the folk festivals we have. Come back to the time you met Tatum. Tatum recognized you, a certain musician. Yeah, Tatum was... was I don't know, it's God. Yeah. Tatum was too much. What was it about Tatum's approach to the piano that attracted you, that threw you? His voicings, his, his harmonics, chordal voicings, in his left hand. He could do anything with his left, he do it with his right. You know, as we're, as we're thinking about that, uh, he, his, what he do his left hand with his right is his, his voicings. Suppose we hear Ming, this is part of a record, there's a recording, by the way. Of many recordings of Mingus, but the one we're playing from is uh, is with Eric Dolphy. He was a, a remarkable, died much too young, remarkable uh, alto man. It's the Mingus Quartet, and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Nat Hentoff, was the producer of it. And this is uh, the Barnaby is the label, and we hear something called original. Could we hear? It's tragic to do this because these are extended pieces. It's a great deal of improvisation occurring, mm. but original Forbes fables. How'd you get that title? Original this is newspapers, you know. Uh -huh. Look at the people who I don't like. <laughs> so we hear who's on this? Uh, yourself on the Eric Dolphy on alto, Danny Richmond on drums, Ted Kirsten on trumpet. Ted Kirsten on trumpet. So we hear. And how would you describe this? I mean, this is uh, an elementary question I'm asking. Uh, a work of the, a performance of this sort. You start. You have a. You 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 have a theme. Yeah. They play the theme first. And then 
And then the guys improvise. Can improvise. So we hear yeah. original Faubus Fables, the Charles Mingus Quartet. I was thinking, listening to the, just the few passages, the fragments here from uh, the work of Charles Mingus and his colleagues, late Eric Dolphy and Eric uh, and uh, Kirsten at the uh, at the trumpet, Richmond at the, at the drums. The humor, the byplay, back and forth too. He was singing here. It's yeah. a. This is in, in a way. Is the give and take? Is this what you call it in church? Call and response. Oh yeah. You know, isn't this what it is in a way? Yeah. Because we, we just. We didn't say anything about the singing. We, it just, the words grew as we played around with it. You'd improvise, and the words would come around. Yeah. You didn't write anything down. No. The no, words no. came at that moment, like yeah. as, as you're talking to Dolphy or to one of the other guys. Yeah. And so a great deal of humor comes out. I'm thinking, in this book of uh, this book of Charles Mingus, that knop for the publishers, Beneath the Underdog, even the very title itself, Under the Underdog, as well as composed by Mingus the way you did it. It was co is composed in a way. Some of this is dialogue, some writing, some I take it into a tape recorder. What is it? Uh, I told something to tape recorder, yeah. My wife typed it off. And some is a conversation with the, uh, the doctor, too. Yeah. Combination. So it's a, it's a going back and forth, forth isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You're talking about your father, your mother, uh, your mother, a very religious woman. Yeah. yeah. So you have a combination here of a guy who's frustrated and furious and a devout mother. Yeah. Well, how'd you figure in this? How'd you, uh, then how is it affecting you? It's or? mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. With all, like witchcraft me. So here you saw it, your father and your mother's uh, trying to explain them. And then she says to you, the scene, you want to read this thing or? You read it. Want me to read it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so here are then the beginnings of it. Also the beginnings of the different shade too. Yeah. The light skin. Yeah. Since obviously some of your ancestors were raised in the big house yeah. rather than in the fields. Yeah, Jackie Byron was from the big house of the day. Jazz came from the big house, not from the whorehouses. Ah. Jackie, you know Jackie Byron? No. Is that what he said? Yeah, he, he's trying to straighten the history out. Mm -hmm. Everybody's trying to say jazz came from the whorehouses. He said he came from the big houses. The masters let those guys play the pianos and things. Hey, that's, yeah. yeah. Could we just stick with this for a minute? This is, this is something, all the time there's a kind of a, a stereotype of jazz that it came from a certain kind of place, whether it be a sporting house or whether it be a gambling dive. No doubt there was jazz of form, blues played there. But you're saying that because the sleigh was in the house, he got to the instrument. Yeah. Yeah. It was free. It was his way of freeing himself. And so it was a combination. Then it was a combination. Yeah. The one of the one of the uh, outstanding feelings you have in reading Charles Mingus's very very singular autobiography is the life of a jazz musician. How there is no set place ever, is there? No. That's why you get into all kinds of trouble, trying to figure out how to make a living. Yeah. You know, get tempted to do everything. So, aside from traveling, different things you have to do, like the, that is the things that you yourself did yeah. one time or another, how easy it is to fall into that. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't a question just of traveling and playing jazz at times you were pimping too. Well, I never really called myself a pimp. I was 
put in that position yeah. with some prostitutes, but I know it was a pimp. Yeah. I couldn't stand it. But I was there, trying to say that in the book. I don't know if I got it clear. Yeah. But you you were caught. I, was, I fancied being a pimp because yeah. I was, in my days, a kid, a pimp was like a president ah, of the United States, yeah. like a, a hero. They had their Cadillacs, the fancy cars. And I always wanted to be as good as they did, but I couldn't fancy the work of, um, of being a powerhouse of a woman. I generally give them the money back. Yeah. But this thing you just said, as a little kid in a black community, this is, this is the important Who was the hero? A certain kind of guy who made it in this society. Yeah. And because this pimp, in a way, was also imitating the man who made That's it. That's right. The big guy. Uh, more than imitating. He had his big Cadillac, yeah. fancy clothes, long diamond chain, uh, watch chain. Watch chain. Yeah. Twirl on the corner. Yeah. So the the heroes then were those would be the pimp and the hustler. Yeah. And so the, as a kid. I felt sorry for the hustlers. I don't yeah. know. That was my thing. You couldn't, you couldn't, you described this scene, by the way, incredibly uh, vividly and tragically, also humorously, too. I fell in love with one of the girls very yeah. much, you know, which I didn't want to hustle. It was her idea. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about the musicians you met, and one was Fats Navarro, Fats, Fat Girl. Yeah, that's a, another one of the gods. What was his, what is it about Fats that... Uh, Attracted you? I don't know. He came to Lionel Hampton's band and he stood up and played. Lionel featured him. I remember the solo he played. Yeah, it's just a big sound. With Hampton. Yeah. yeah. But in his fats, you want me to read this too? Or okay. you want to read this? No, I can't read All it. All right, this is, <laughs> this is Charlie Mingus's writing. And he meets uh, Fats, a young Cuban heavy guy who was ill, who died. How old was he? 27? I think so. He died of uh, TB. And this is when Fats Navarro, in a sense, was telling you the facts of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a part, isn't it, the matter of the syndicate. We haven't talked about this much, isn't it? Uh, the hoods who take over some of the yeah, they, places. They do take over, man. They take over the record companies, you know, and run them themselves. Yeah. This steal, one, the, steal records right in plain. Nothing you can do about it. What do you mean they steal records? They take and press the same record and sell it on the market. Yeah. And the artist gets nothing. Nothing. I had a record in my, uh, Massey Hall. Remember that record, Jazz mm -hmm. Massey Hall? Mm -hmm. With Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell. Well, when my wife left me, I took the record off the market. I was going to be a collector's item about it. A guy called me from 8th Street in New York and said he wanted the record. I told him it wasn't for sale. He went to Europe and bought the record and came back and sold it all over America without paying for it, without paying me for it. So it was your record, you and these, here's the record. Now, Mingus is now talking about a remarkable recording with some of the great, the titans of jazz. He mentioned Parker. And who else was in it with you? Dizzy Gillespie. And Dizzy Gillespie. Bud Powell. And Bud Powell. Max Roach. And Max Roach. Now we have, if ever there were major leaguers, you know, we, we, the company was our own company. We were yeah. going to split the money up. It was your company, and a hood comes along and takes it. Yeah. What if you... But you couldn't sue because... Sue me. You probably could have, but I just think it was what's the use. Yeah. It would take so long in the courts, yeah. the lawyer fees. This was, you know, once upon a time, Big Bill once was describing a, an agent as a man with dollar signs for eyes. Yeah. yeah. This is what you've seen pretty often. Yeah. yeah. Dollar signs. 
There's a phrase here that caught me that Fats Navarro used in talking to you, to Charles Mingus, my guest. But if you behave, boy, you'll get booked, except for less than the white cats that copy your playing, and likely even the agent or owner will pocket the difference. We can't but think of singers and artists. Certain songs sung by Peggy Lee that were smashes, and yet they were the songs of Billie Holiday. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when you see Peggy sing, and uh, Billie be out in the street starving, and Peggy be in the Embers Club singing Billie Holiday. See, this is what I'm singing, style of Billie Holiday, breaking it up. Stan Guest is in the hotel across the street from Birdland when, I mean, Lester Young was in the hotel. Mm-hmm. I forgot the name of the hotel. Earl? Mm-hmm. I think it's Earl. Across from Birdland, Stan Guest coming to Cadillac. Lester shook his head because Stan Guest's whole style is based on Lester. You know, it, uh, for those who don't follow jazz, this is uh, Charles Mingus is giving us a key to so much right now. Uh, Stan Getz, uh, brilliant. George uh, Ween told me. Tenor George Ween said that George Ween, the, the, he's, Sam Gibbs is going to take the records uh, that Lester mm-hmm. made and be practicing for new solos. Yeah. Gets white uh, tenor sax man following the style of uh, a great colleague and friend of Billy Holiday's work with Basie's band who revolutionized the tenor sax, Lester Young. So Young was out on the street and yeah. Gets, who followed his style, yeah. was doing Doing big business. Is this was this pattern repeated itself continuously? Many times. Yeah. yeah. Think of singers, and of course you mentioned Billy. What is it about before we hear her own "God Bless the Child"? You worked with her, I know. Yeah. What is it about Billy that uh, you remember her 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 work? What is it about her? This is soul, man. I feel it. She's singing for real. She's not just singing for public. She's singing. She means it. I found everything I love. I found everything she does. Even when she grew older, she 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 changed her style. She didn't try to sound like a young little girl. She's like a mature woman. As you say, again, a memory in my mind. I've said this a number of times. I I was in a little place. It was called the Budland, not Birdland. A little place on the South Side in a black area in Chicago. I was the only white person. The only what, but ten people there. It was the last days of Billie Holiday. The thing that Mingus just said, Charles Mingus, that even if she grew older, something was happening. She wasn't going down. There was a change. And she sang, Willow, weep for me. Maybe yeah. ten people in the whole house, you know. Yeah. But it was, I never heard it ever sung that way yeah. before or since. Yeah, she shook her thing. But it's the way she was, and there yeah. was no mask. Yeah. Her philosophy is in that song that you got over there. What's um, God, God bless the child, child. God's own? Well, Lady Day, she was known as Billy Holiday. God bless the child. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child has got his own. Yeah. That's the way she felt about life. You've got to be pretty much on her own because yeah. open the wound. Now, she was, I suppose, Billy was so vulnerable, always. Very sensitive person. Yeah. And you have a whole sequence here dealing with the vulnerability. Charles Mingus, my guest, Beneath the Underdog. It's a book, his biography is composed by him using different techniques and about the, the nature of drugs and why it is. Guys, took people who were musicians and artists at that time when he took to them, you know. Yeah. What is it that, that led you, you and uh, Fats Navarro? Well, drugs, give me food and drugs. Drugs is uh, like a way of, Having a cup of coffee, somebody you get tricked into it yeah. just by trying to be friends with somebody. Yeah. 
you do it with a guy you like very much. I never do it with vats, but I was tempted yeah. to try drugs. Just when it's introduced to you. Or, or with a woman, a mm. woman that uses drugs. Mm. Social. Yeah, being sociable. Yeah. In a way, like yeah. drinking, too, in a way. Yeah. Sociable. And there's one spot here, uh, Fats spoke of religion a lot and God. And he spoke of also the hypocrisy of it. But he says here, he was you were you and he and Max Roach were working together with Hampton. Yeah. And somewhere, and Max Roach was saying references here to the Bible yeah. too. And then Fats is talking to you. He called you Ming. Yeah. So we're talking about another kind of slavery. Oh, no, that definitely is slavery. Yeah. I'm very lucky I ain't caught in that. Yeah. I feel I am. But I'm thinking about you because the book also deals with the artist, and that's Mingus and his music. So, your adventures outside the club where you work in the recording studio, you and the and the bass, and here, how often was was music the key to your life? Key to happiness for yeah. me. When something was going wrong, I always write music. Yeah, you would always. That would be your out. Would it? Yeah. You'd be there. Would you be when you were writing music? Would this? Would you would you do it on a on a certain schedule or just when it hits you? No, I write sometimes. Never stop two three days. Yeah. My mother used to give me coffee, keep me when I was kids training, studying. I still write all night long. Yeah, you could write for two three. You mean you could write forty eight hours? Sure. Straight uh, writing. Well, John Allen Hopkins band. I wrote um, about ten arrangements in about three or four days. Mingus Fingers was one of them. And I wrote several ballads. You know, without see, my mother was there helping me stay awake because she didn't want to do the music. Your mother, by the way, this is interesting because you had the big difficulties with your mother. But later on, when you became the musician, then did she begin to understand you? She you know, she always liked hillbilly music. She was like well, your jazz. mother did, yeah. Yeah, she would go for jazz. She, I don't think she even knew today that I was famous. Oh, she didn't? No. She knew Lionel Hampton's band, but Lionel Hampton mean anything to her. No. But she liked country and western music. Yeah. I said, how'd she feel about the blues? Strange woman, church music, so she liked church, church. music and country and western. Is that so? Yeah. Well, did your mother, you, you think your mother didn't want to? I think she didn't maybe she know too much about the radio, because she just turned on those stations. Yeah. The religious stations. Yeah. And uh, country and western. Because she was in more than religion station because she's more in church most of the time. That's yeah. very funny. Did she, you, did your mother feel funny about being black? No. no. It's my stepmother. Your stepmother? Yeah. She, she was prejudiced too. She felt she passed Mexican. She's oh, she went past Mexican. Yeah. She had chisel nose, small feet. She's always bragging, but that's not color characteristics. Yeah. It's funny, some would sometimes want to pass for Indian. Yeah. In this case, Mexican. Yeah. But she didn't know about you. By the way, and there are very funny sequences involved here. One is with you and Juan Tizor when you were, for a short time, with Duke Ellington. Yeah, Duke fired me very pretty. Yeah. <laughs> he, Duke has a good way. I think we ought to read this scene. It's a very funny scene. Juan Tizor is very tempestuous. Uh, uh, Trombone and uh, player with the Duke and the composer. When it, what happened here? You were doing something? I was practicing downstairs in the basement. And he came down and uh, he wrote some music and asked me to play it. I was studying classical bass at the time, so I raised an octave higher and played it in thumb position. 
He says, you niggas can't read. He says, none of the niggas in this band can read. He says, I, I gave you something to play, and you play an octave, and you didn't play it, you know? So I, I didn't know that he wasn't, that he didn't consider, he consider himself a nigga. I said, well, aren't you a nigga, man? What do you call about nigga? He said, no, I'm Cuban. A Puerto Rican one, which I think he's a Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. So I ran him upstairs. I chased him out of the room, like, you know. <laughs> I said, well, you better get away from calling people nigger, you know. <laughs> Next time, I know, he comes back, and we're going to do going on stage, and here comes this guy with a knife this long, man. A <laughs> bolo knife. Yeah. <laughs> so I ran, I ran and got a, the fire axe. That's what the scene was. You got an axe? Yeah. <laughs> I had an axe, basin on hand, an axe on the other. And then Duke des- Duke describes the incident. And so Duke, so naturally, uh, Juan Tizol had been with the Duke for quite a while, a Mingus. <laughs> and so you have in the scene here, Mingus in his book describes, uh, was it the Apollo Theater? Yeah, the, yeah. the Apollo Theater. And in comes Tizol, you know, with the bolo knife. The rest remember Duke's own words. And that's why he's called, Edward Ellington Kenny is called Duke. Because he has an elegance about him. Yeah. So he fires Mingus, but I gotta read this. Wait. <laughs> yeah, you got him. <laughs> and you say here the charming way he says it, it's like he's paying you a cup, feeling honored, you shake hands and resign. Yeah. So that's the Duke. Yeah, he's a beautiful man. He has a, so then it was a qu- question then of playing different gigs and uh, forming different groups and playing with different guys. Yeah. There's a remarkable description here of. Um, of a nightclub you work with and the uh, wife, the owner of the club, who's a tough, she liked you very much and you had quite a bit of uh, doings with her. But there's certain kinds of women like her, they're attracted with that tough, aren't they? Yeah. Survival, they gotta survive, yeah. is that it? it was, she was really a tough chick. Yeah, but white or black, I mean this question of the certain kind who has that survival need, isn't yeah. it? That when, and then in and out comes this conversation you have with the psychiatrist. When did you feel you were cracking? Um, my, my, no, I, I didn't mention it, but around the time I was read novel, I was married. My uh, wife insisted I go to the psychiatrist. So I started going to the psychiatrist way back. The whole book was like that in the original mm-hmm. book. Yeah. Just jump back and forth yeah. to the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. But it, they, they changed the form around to make it simpler. And so throughout we have this, the talking to uh, the doctor, yourself, remembering childhood, and in a way out of it comes a revelation, not just about Charles Mingus, but about a way of life too, about Jasmine who are creative and about a certain time too in our society, and the way it behaves toward artists too. And I'm thinking about uh, more of the music you do, and the people visiting you also, the critics who sit at the tables and they ask for advice, but somehow I think we should hear just a bit more of Mingus, more of the music. Since we're talking, as you say yourself, you talk less now than... You used to talk a great deal. Yeah, I used to talk a lot too much. No, it wasn't too much. You yeah. get in trouble a lot, but it was you, you were speaking used, your mind. You always spoke your mind. I talked very fast and too much. When did, when did you... When did the barrier come? When did I you don't feel, know. I just noticed it. I, just, I went to the hospital. I went outside in Bellevue. I went to Mount Sinai. Shortly after it came out, I couldn't. I didn't feel like talking. But you're putting it in writing, though. Now. Yeah. Are you still composing? You're still playing? Yeah, I'm still writing. I got, yeah. I'm doing a, for Joffrey Ballet. They're gonna do a, some things of mine this June, July. I see. What's this month? Uh, this is uh, 
We're in May now, end of May. May. June, end of, end of June. The Joffrey Ballet? Is? Yeah. Arpino is going to choreograph at this No, it's um, another guy. I can't yeah. think of his name. But Joffrey Ballet is going to work yeah. with, with yours. Yeah. You're writing specifically for them yes. now. So you are in the midst of creating right at this moment. Yeah. Suppose we have part of a, what is it? A, it's a, By the way, this album, the, we're talking about the book of Mingus primarily, Alfred Knopf, the publishers, and it's called Beneath the Underdog. It's a work composed by Mingus, but there's also the album. We also have a musical album here. Perhaps we had just part, again, it's, this is ridiculous to play passages because there's music builds and there are variations, but what love. We hear this with, again, Eric Dolphy is one of his colleagues. Again, we fade the music of Mingus and his colleagues, and I can't help but think of imagination that is there in the byplay and the ensemble work and a certain freedom, and a doctor. There are doctors and doctors, and there's one scene that Mingus describes when he went to Bellevue. He calls this man Dr. Bonk. And uh, there's absolutely no, no, no connection here between him and you, between him and this other world, reading from the book. Well, hence, <laughs> of course, you heard about it. You know what a lobotomy was. Yeah. He wanted, cut on me, man. he wanted to cut that out of you right away, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was a Nazi, man. I know he was a Nazi. Yeah. This is the way it is. All Negroes aren't paranoid. Yeah. I mean, some of the world is against them, you know? The yeah. world is not for us. You know, as uh, Charles Mingus is talking, I read this piece, and you go on to say, uh, you're telling the story to someone, and you go on to say, uh, the very thing that makes a creative guy, yeah. that chaos and the turbulence that makes you, Mingus, yeah. is what the guy wants to cut out. Cut out, yeah. So therefore, you could be a zombie. That's right. Well, that's about what they did to Bud. When he got in the hospital, the shock treatment. I, I'm not sure, I, but I think he had a frontal lobotomy. This is Bud Powell. Yeah, he, he was, was in, he had... No, he had, he had shock treatment. He had shock treatment. Yeah. What finally happened to Bud when he came out? He just was like a zombie. He was. Yeah. So that's it. He could play, but that's all. Yeah, but that's all. But that yeah. mental unrest was mm. gone. Yeah. That unrest they wanted to He wasn't alive anymore. He was like a dead man. Yeah. You know One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? A book called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? No, no, no. Well, read that. It's about this, this oh, thing yeah? we're talking about. So you describe this scene. This is right out of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. But this is a way in which they can really get the artist, can't they? Yeah. They cut out that metal unrest. Well, the book of Mingus, this autobiography, ends with uh, remembering the dialogue with your friend Fats Navarro again before he died the last time. And then he asked you about God at the very end. Yeah, he's, he's wondering why I kept believing when he didn't believe. You were believing. Yeah. And he was not believing. Yeah. Why did you believe? Well, it's not like my parents had taught me, but uh, I just figured it had to be something better than man says it for himself. It just seemed so natural there was a God. And Fats no longer believed it. No, he didn't. He cursed God. So at the end, perhaps this last part, he was known as, as a reference to a girl, he was known as Fat Girl. This is Fats Navarro, who died at 26, 27. And the book ends with this dialogue between Charles Mingus, my guest, and Fats Navarro. And so the book ends of Charles Mingus, my guest, Alfred Knopf, the publishers, Beneath the Underdog. It's, it's a beautiful book. And a remarkable artist, my guest. And we'll end with music, your music, as I say goodbye to you now. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stutch.